Do you think we've mentioned the word Christmas enough times already? <laughs> I've got bad news for you. It's going to happen a few more times now. Um, <laughs> how you doing? You all right? Welcome to Regis. Lovely people. It is amazing to see you guys. Um, it's been a while, hasn't it? And, and to many of you, you're kind of like, if, if you're brand new here in Grace Church, you're probably looking at me going, well, you know, if you're brand new, you've got no idea who I am. That's fair enough. You're new. Fair play. Um, welcome. Great to have you here. But it could be you've been coming along to Grace Church for quite some time, and you're still sitting here right now looking at me going, well, who is this guy? And that's fair enough, too. Um, my name is Tim, uh, and my wife and I, we've been part of Grace Church all the way back since it first started in 2005. And the church actually first started in Chichester, uh, and we were there for a few years. And then um, the church decided to do this thing called multi-site. And we decided to send our best and brightest and most wonderful people all the way to Bognor Regis. Which, yeah, I know, and you're still here. It's great. Uh, which included Kate and I. Right? And, then, and then we decided, the church decided to plant another site all the way up in Midhurst. Uh, and Kate and I felt the call to move. Uh, so we moved house, went beyond the Tangmere Divide. You know, the A27, I went up to Midhurst, and now we're part of Chichester again. So basically, what we're really saying is that we're fickle, aren't we? That's where we're at. We're flaky. Um, so you're going to see you in six months. Um, uh, but that's, where, that's, where, that's kind of where we've come from. Now, uh, let's get back to what we're talking about today, because uh, as Johnny has all alluded to, uh, already alluded to, and the nativity scene, which is being set up, it's all getting quite Christmassy. Have we noticed that yet? Yeah. Uh, the supermarket shelves, they are loaded with minced pies. Uh, there's no eggs, obviously, um, but we do have minced pies, so we're going to be okay. Stuffing mix is reduced. We've just had Black Friday. Uh, it's getting very, very Christmassy. And as a church, we are no different. And so for the next four weeks, we are having a break from Exodus, and we're going to be talking into the subject of Advent. And, uh, and can I, can, when the word Advent, I mean, what does that actually flipping mean? Like, I, I didn't know. Like, you say, oh, we're doing Advent. What's that? Something to do with Christmas? Maybe. Uh, so I looked it up. What does Advent actually mean? And um, it's the, different, the, the dictionary definition of Advent is the coming of a notable person or thing. So for us, no prizes for guessing, Jesus. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the coming of Jesus. And so for the next four weeks, in the run-up to Christmas, we're going to be preaching about the coming of Jesus. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the hope that Jesus brings to the world, what it's like to wait for him and the joy and love that he has brought to us. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the subject of hope. We're going to be looking at what hope is for us. Because when we talk about hope, we need to be quite careful here. Because the hope that the world that we live in refers to is literally defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. In other words, the world we live in today, the very dictionary definition would be little more than wishful thinking. It's like, well, I hope I get that job. I hope the war will stop. I hope England wins the World Cup. Might happen. Might not happen. But the Bible defines hope as something quite different because biblical hope is built on faith. So if we read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what hope we have for and assurance about what we do not see. That faith is 
confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And this is going to be really, really important for us this morning. When we come to look at hope today, we need to understand and look at this concept through that biblical lens. That hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is not blind. It's not uncertainty. Hope is the knowledge rooted in faith that what God says is true is actually true. So hope for us is literally something you can bet your life on. So we're going to come to that in a second. But before we do that, I've just got a quick question for you this morning. If you are here this morning and you're a parent uh, with primary school aged kids, just stick your hands up in the air. I've got one. We've got a few in the room. Fantastic. Okay. So are your kids talking about their school nativity yet? Yeah, it's all starting to happen, is it? It's all starting to happen. Um, so I, I don't know about you, but in our house, my daughter is getting fully geared up for it. She is properly, properly excited. Um, and is it my imagination, or do all school nativities follow the exact same pattern every single year? Yeah, I'll explain what I mean by that. So like, your kids join the primary school, okay? So they get, they're in a reception, year one, year two. They're really young ones. And, and for those first few nativity plays, they, they're the animals, aren't they? They play the animals, they're the sheep, um, usually sheep, but a lion or a tiger is not unheard of, okay? All right, and that's fair enough. They're five years old. It's like the teachers go, okay, right, you sit there, look cute, try not to pick your nose. That's the drill. That's what they're there for, okay? And, and as a parent, you go and watch school nativities. And, and, and if you look around the room when you look at a school nativity, you can always tell the parents of those kids because they always do the same thing. They're waving like mad, taking loads of photos, and they're, they're just doing this. It's like... And I've been that parent, and that's okay, yeah? But then you get the older kids, years three and four. They get a little bit more responsibility, a little bit more acting. And that's where my daughter's at. So, so last week, she literally bursts out, Daddy, Daddy, I'm angel number six. And I'm like, yes, well done, that's fantastic. Angel number six, that's great. That's another great non-speaking role again. And, you know, and... And, and, you, and as a parent, you go and you watch the nativities. And, and again, if you look around the room, you can see the parents of the, the, that kind of cohort's kids because they've been to three nativities now. They know the drill. And they're like this. <laughs> Someone said true, thanks. I mean, am I, am I wrong? Uh, come on, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it's a bit like that. And then you get the oldest kids, right? And they are year five and year six. And, and they're there to do the serious acting. They are the innkeeper. They are the three wise men. They are properly scripted roles. But within this group of kids, there is one particular part, the very top role. That role in the nativity performance that requires practice, perseverance and iron nerve. Does anyone know what that role is? Any guesses? The donkey? Anyone else? Someone said narrator. Did I hear narrator? Yeah, it's the narrator. Isn't it? Because they've got to go the whole way through. Yeah? The narrator in the school nativity is like the top role and that always goes to the brightest and most confident year six pupil. And again, if you go along to a school nativity... And you watch the parents. You can tell who the narrator's parents are. 
Because like, the, the all-consuming smugness is just amazing, right? <laughs> okay, and, and, and I know that might sound condemning, and I don't wish it to be, because if you're here this morning and you are the year six narrator's parents, I want to be you. <laughs> it's not happening for me, but I want to be you. And, and, and it's just, yeah, and that's where it's at. But here's the thing. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, whilst all this is being played out in thousands of nativities that go across the land, there's usually one moment in the performance where the narrator reads from a passage in the Bible, and it's usually Isaiah chapter 9. The smart year six kid gets to a point where they say this. For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Does that ring any bells? Yeah. And then inevitably, the whole nativity play just carries on. And you might turn up and watch nativity plays for years and years and years, and you go and you support your kids, you try and be a good parent, and over the years we hear these words without any real regard or knowledge of their context or meaning. And why does this matter? Well, it's because these Bible verses were delivered by the prophet Isaiah to a nation in darkness and turmoil in order to give them hope. And the same is true for us today. Because I think we can all agree, the world we live in right now, even our own nation, there's a lot of problems. It's a bit of a mess. We live in darkness and turmoil today. And, and when we look into the meaning of these verses, we can also find hope for ourselves today. And that is why we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. So let's have a look at this together. We're in Isaiah chapter 9. We're starting at verse 2. Uh, we'll go through it together, and I'll point out a few things on the way. Okay? Fantastic. So, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So let's pause there for a quick moment. So straight away, we've got this theme of light and darkness. And if you read the book of Isaiah, then that does make sense. So, because to grasp uh, what we're talking about this morning, we need to un understand the context of this book. So here it is. This book in the Old Testament records the words of a prophet called Isaiah. This is a man who heard from God and gave these words to the nation of Israel at the time. We know he lived around about 700 BC, and he prophesied over a long period of time. So the book of Isaiah is not literally like one day, one hit, here you get everything. It is the results of years of prophecy delivered to Israel over a time span of four kings. Some of it is quite poetic. Some of it is written in prose, like normal language. And huge amounts of it is really judgmental. Huge amounts of what God has to say to that nation at the time is full of judgment, despair, and anguish. So I'll give you an example, okay? So if you read Isaiah chapter 1, you just have to get to verse 11, and Isaiah is prophesying this. Here's what he says. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I've had more than enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and confiscations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. 
They have become a burden to me. I am wearing of bearing them. Do you get the idea? Yeah? It's like, and this is the first eight chapters, right? So, I mean, Isaiah's not really coming across as a fun guy so far. You wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of this. And we know that Isaiah, he spoke to the nation, he spoke to kings. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, like a servant walking in. King Ahaz, the prophet Isaiah has come to see you. Okay, what kind of a mood is he in? Same as last time. You know, it's not going to be good news. This is where it was at. So what we have here in the first eight chapters of this prophecy is Isaiah painting this picture of a nation of people steeped in judgment. This is, this is historically a nation who ignored God, went their own way, and they thought they knew better, and this was the result. And then at the very end of chapter 8, it talks about this nation walking in darkness. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of chapter 9, where we are now, we get this astonishing promise. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Darkness to light. Now, if we go to verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So all of a sudden, this darkness turns to light. That's the promise. To us, a child will be born. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will have wisdom and knowledge unsurpassable. Mighty God, God in human form. Everlasting Father, that he will father a people for himself that will last forever. Prince of peace. The darkness will end. There will be peace. No more anguish. No more turmoil. No more judgment. And not only that, the greatness of this government and peace, there will be no end forever and ever. And then right at the end of the passage, it just says how this is going to happen. It simply says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we're left in no doubt, right? There will be a change, a change from darkness to light. We're going from gloom to glory, violence to everlasting peace. And the individual responsible for this will not be a king of a nation. It will not be a treaty. It will not be the will of any man. It will be the zeal of God himself that brings this about. And, and just whilst we're here, can we just have a quick Bible nerd moment? Can we do that? Okay. When we look at that last sentence, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If you look at the original Hebrew, that word for zeal is a really strong word. It literally also translates as jealousy. It's like, we, we kind of need to get hold of that and understand it because... Despite this entire nation flipping and flopping, being hot and cold for God, despite their darkness and turmoil, God doesn't give up on them. In fact, he has a plan for them, a plan for the whole earth, a plan to go from darkness to light through this charge which will be born, and it's the 
passionate jealousy of God. It's the zeal of God himself that brings this about. So when we read these Bible verses and we start to get a grasp of the context, it means so much more than just a a few sentences in a nativity play. And this morning, there's three things I want to show you from these verses. I want to point out from these verses, okay? And here they are. Firstly, what would it be like for the people who originally received this prophecy? Then let's have a look at what does this mean for the world today? And then lastly, what does it mean for you and me today, right here, right now? And that's when we can practically apply it to our lives. Okay? Grand. Let's go. So, what would it have been like for the Jewish people who originally heard this? Because to those who heard this message back then, after all that condemnation, this is something they could get hold of. Because if you look at the history of Israel, I mean, it is a complete roller coaster. It is literally a litany of triumph and failure. At the time of Isaiah, they had a succession of kings. Some obeyed God, but the Bible is very clear on this. Most of them were evil. They lived under the constant threat of invasion. For years and years and years, there was this empire to the north, the Assyrian Empire, constantly threatening to take over their land. And even after the time of Isaiah, things didn't really get any better for them. The 700 years after Isaiah, it's just full of discord, rebellion. The nation was eventually overrun by the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians split up the Jewish people and distributed them around its empire. So they they became a people with no home, literally exiled. And then eventually they're allowed to come back to their land. And then before you know it, the Romans came along, dominated them, and it was during the Roman occupation that Jesus was born. So this is a roller coaster of history. But here's the point. For all of that time, for the seven, that 700 years, throughout all of that mayhem, they had this promise of a mighty king who would be born. And we know that the Jewish people, you know, they would have kept hold of this. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, this book of Isaiah is quoted 55 times. With the exception of the book of Psalms, it is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue, he stands up to read, and where does he read from? He reads from Isaiah. To the people who heard this, this, this is a message of hope. To a nation, a people who knew constant conflict and uncertainty, this prophecy gave them something to look forward to, a hope for the future. And they lived with that hope that one day a child will be born, a leader, a saviour, a messiah. And they assumed that this king would restore Israel to its former glory. But if you read these prophecies, if you understand the purpose behind this hope, it's not just a hope for them. It's not just a hope for that nation. This is a promise for all humanity. And this this hope is threaded all the way through the Bible. You can find it in every single book. You can even find it all the way back, right at the beginning in Genesis. I'll give you an example. In Genesis Uh, 22 verse 18, God is speaking to Abraham who fathered the nation. And God says this, he says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So it's not just the blessing will be for Abraham or his family or his nation, it will be all nations on earth. See, even back then, God was pointing forwards pointing towards this prophecy, this promise that this child to be born, this king, the Messiah, will be a blessing and a hope to all nations. So what does that mean for the whole world then today? Because as you can probably tell from most nativity plays, Jesus is the child that was to be born. 
He is the wonderful counselor. He is almighty God in human form. He is the one who fathered the nation of saints, a people not condemned but forgiven and free. He has brought peace for our own lives that no matter what the world can throw at us, we can have peace. And he will come again to restore the earth and complete peace and he will rule, rule and reign forever. So that's what this passage is talking about. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is or what he has done, then let me tell you, okay? Because as we've already alluded to here, we live in this messed up world. I mean, has it occurred to you that maybe there's something wrong with humanity? I mean, if you look at the big picture, look at the big things that are going on right now, just look at the news, and it is full of death, conflict, and human rights abuses. And most of us right now, you kind of go, yeah, I understand that, that's the Ukraine, okay? But we forget because it's not in the news. We can only absorb so much. What about Syria, the Yemen, huge areas of Africa, Iran? And yet we kind of don't really know about it, but it is there, it's happening. We live in a world that has pretty much always had some form of major conflict somewhere. And we're only good at really looking at it in ourselves and going, well, everything seems to be okay. But the reality of it is that, let's be honest, human, humanity is really, really good at being evil to one another. I know that sounds a bit grim, but it's true. But when we distill that down to an individual level, we've all got our selfishness. Like I can stand here right now and go, well, okay, I've been selfish, I've lied and I've cheated. We've all done things that we wouldn't want to tell other people about. We've all got our shame. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not what I'm... You know, hey, at least you've got a conscience, yeah? But if it helps, I'm telling you this now, and I, as I've already alluded to, I'm quite happy to stand here and say I've, I'm a hypocrite. Let me be perfectly clear on this. I can stand here right now and I can admit to you guys that I've, done, I've had thoughts and actions in my life that I would not want to tell you about because I've got my shame. And the reality of it is that's true of everybody in this room and everybody on this planet. And it is those thoughts and actions that create a huge problem. When Isaiah was prophesying to this nation, if you read the first eight chapters, that when God is just pouring out judgment on these people, it all points to one central issue. And that issue is called sin. When we go our own way, when we act in selfishness, when we do things which in our hearts we know is wrong, whether we do that as one person or as an entire nation, we're engaging with sin. And the scary thing about this is that the Bible is really clear on who has sinned and what the consequences are. In the book of Romans, it simply says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then later on in that same, that same book, it's very specific on the consequence. It simply says, the wages of sin is death. And that's tough for us to kind of get our heads around or grab hold of. We've all sinned and the consequence is death. You and I, we will all be held accountable for our lives. And that death that the Bible speaks of is not just a physical death, the one that we all read about in the news, but it's a spiritual death too. We are completely cut off from the God who created us. And as mankind, sin is something we've all chosen. We all choose to do it. We all choose to rebel, be selfish, and act the way we do. And we can see it in the first eight chapters of Isaiah. We can see it in the world, and if we're really honest, we can see it in ourselves. Now, 
you, you, you might have been coming to Grace Church for years and thinking, okay, Tim, yeah, that's great. Carry on. I know where the good bit's coming, okay? And, it, and I will. But equally, you might be sitting here this morning thinking, mm, this is a bit grim, okay? Be forgiven on that, okay? Like, it, it's okay. If you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable this morning, then I apologize, but please hear me out. Because we live in a society that doesn't want to talk about things like this. It's like we just want to skip along to the nice bit, like in the nativity. Because here's the truth. There is a God who created the heavens and the earth. He is perfect in every way. He has no sin. He cannot abide sin. He cannot be faulted, because otherwise he would not be God. That is why the wages of sin is death. Because God will have nothing to do with it, either yours or mine. And if you're hearing this for the first time today, then do you know what? There is good news, because what we're talking about today is God's rescue plan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, because a child was born. His name is Jesus. And he came to this earth, God in human form. He lived among us for 30 years, and that entire time he did something that no one before or after could ever do. He has lived his life, or he lived his life without sin. And he was framed by the very people he came to save, and he was crucified and left to die. And on that cross, Jesus became a sacrifice for all the sins of the world, one sacrifice for the entirety of humankind. Jesus died on that cross to save you and me. And as I said earlier from the book of Romans, the rages of sin is death. But here's the thing, Jesus never sinned. Death had no power on him. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. And now he is living and reigning in heaven. God has placed everything under his feet. God's rescue plan is complete. So when John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the rescue plan. And when we put our faith in Jesus, our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. It's like they never happened. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are grafted into the family of God. When we put our faith in Jesus, we can look forward to entering into heaven. Death is not to be feared. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We can know God for ourselves day to day in a living and active relationship. When we put our faith in Jesus, we can live without fear. We can live without darkness. We can know this great light for ourselves. When we put our faith in Jesus, we get hope. Not hope as the world sees it, wishful thinking, but a real and tangible hope that God is living and active in our lives and around us. And that's the promise of God for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And that's why when we read Isaiah chapter 9, if you're a Christian here this morning, you can look at it and you can go, yes, Jesus is my wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. That's what this means for the world today. And before we really practically apply this right now, um, just consider this. Most of us, if not all of us, We'll hear something and we apply it to our own circumstances. But God's plan to save humanity applies to every people group on earth. It applies to every race and tribe and tongue. It applies to every culture and circumstance. The salvation that brings us, Jesus brings 
is available to a soldier on a Ukrainian battlefield. Jesus is available to somebody carrying an abasement in Kiev. Jesus is there for every orphan in Africa and every person living in a slum in Mumbai. But he's also available to every hedge fund manager and billionaire. And he's available to every single person in this room. To the people who first heard this message from Isaiah, their expectation of this child to be born was also an expectation for their circumstances to change. And that didn't happen for them. And so many people think that, well, if Jesus loves me, then surely he will change my circumstances. And, and that might happen, um, but it's not a promise. And the reason why I'm saying all this is that right now in the UK, we are living in a level of uncertainty that many of us have never seen before. I mean, like, just look at our recent history. It's horrendous. Like, global pandemic, uh, then we're going into, what, economic uncertainty, a war in Europe, just, just over there, war in Europe. We've got soaring inflation, cost of living crisis. We're staring down the barrel of another recession. We're all seriously worried about how we're going to make ends meet. And I don't know about you, but being perfectly frank, my electricity bill scares the hell out of me. There's a lot going on right now. And, and I was just looking at it all, and you think, honestly, I'm looking back, I'm looking back at the recent past, and there's a bit of me that is honestly just thinking, can we just go back to dealing with Brexit? Like, I'm almost at the point of going, wasn't Brexit great? Like, oh, oh Brexit, oh, I love Brexit. Okay, maybe not Brexit, but I'll tell you what, can we just go back to being last at Eurovision? Can we do that? We know where we stood there. I just want to be last in Eurovision again. And... And I, I know I'm being silly here, but seriously, all of this stuff that is going on, it's having a profound effect. The very hope that our culture clings to is falling to pieces. Like people, it's the hope of wealth and success and stability, the hope of career and materialism and hedonism. It's falling apart right in front of our very eyes. Because at the end of the day, it's literally just wishful thinking. And we can all be trapped by this. I know I have. And I've got to be honest with you, and I've, I've had things, I think we're all in the same boat here, I've had things that I've been really worried about. And I've had my fair share of anxiety. And it's interesting, because I was kind of looking at that and going, well, why? And for me, I, I worked it out, it's because I'd forgotten where my hope lies. And, and just actually in preparing this talk, I can honestly say it's been a real challenge for me and a privilege because I've come back and I've been reminded of the true hope, the real hope that God promises us. It's so easy to get caught up in the world and its worries. But you know what? Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what do we do? What do we do if that's a challenge for us? We come back to our faith and that hope. And I know that, my, that God may not change my circumstances, just as he may not change the circumstances of any other person. But we can come back to the certainty of what God says is true, is indeed true. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Like, do you know that for yourself? Do you know the truth? that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. 
Do you know that for yourself this morning? Do you know for you this morning, like in Philippians chapter 4, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know for yourself this morning in 2 Timothy um, 1 verse 7, that it's, we do not live in a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And for me, I had to come back to Philippians chapter 4 and really pray into this, where it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And yes, despite all that is going on, these truths are there for everyone. And our circumstances might not change. And that's because our hope doesn't depend on our circumstances. Yes, we will face trials. Yes, we may suffer. Why? Because we need to understand that actually there is purpose in these things. God in his infinite wisdom, the mighty counselor, uses our circumstances for his glory and ultimately our benefit. And just for me, I can stand here this morning and I can honestly say, yeah, I've had some tough times recently. It's been hard. But when the dust settles, I can look back and I can actually see the all-powerful, unmistakable, gentle hand of God working in and through those times. And if I can boast in anything, I'll boast in that. Because you know what? I'm not perfect. I may not always get things right. My kids, men, may, they might not get to be the year six narrator. But do you know what? We can know the power of Jesus in our lives. And we do get to trust in the Almighty God no matter what the circumstance. And when we put all of that together, that's where we can place our hope. And I just want to finish with one last Bible verse because all I've just said, if you think that's kind of a little bit of wishful thinking, have a look at Romans chapter 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We get hope. So just as we kind of come, close, come to a close this morning, can I ask the band to come back up? In a moment, we're going to worship again. But before we do that, I'd just like us all really please to ask a, a question, a fundamental question of ourselves. Ask this of yourself. Where do I place my hope? Because it might be this morning that you're here and you don't know Jesus. You're not a Christian. And if that's the case, you can put your faith in him right now. You can put your hope in him. And I'm going to pray. Can we all bow our heads and pray? And just pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to this world. I thank you that you were the child to be born. I thank you that you died for my sins. I thank you that you're my saviour. You are the mighty God and Prince of Peace. I put my faith in you today, and I will walk in your hope forevermore. Amen. So, what if you are a Christian here today? Ask yourself that question. Where is my hope right now? 
Because if you're a Christian here this morning, despite everything that is going on, is your hope rooted in Jesus? And if that's a challenge for you, that's okay. Do you know what? It was a challenge for me. Jesus loves you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And can we all stand? Are we going to worship in just a moment? But if that's a challenge for you this morning, do you know what? God is here and God loves you and we have the Holy Spirit. So we're going to worship and then I'd love the opportunity to pray for you. So let's worship and then we'll pray.